They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host. A great episode today, episode 55. We had intended for Dr. Ron Paul to be our guest on episode 50 to kind of celebrate that milestone. Um, That was a few weeks back and the weekend before uh, we were supposed to talk to Dr. Paul, uh, of course, we got the bad news that his daughter had passed away. So we immediately messaged uh, uh, Ron's uh, contact person and said, hey, you know, we'll do it in a few weeks. So Uh, That time uh, has come. Uh, Mike and I were um, able to talk to Dr. Paul earlier this week. I'm recording this on June 11th. And uh, just wouldn't you know it, um, I I record this from my home office in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, I do it kind of all myself. I'm getting better at it. But the technical side of things sometimes still gets to me. A few episodes ago, I messed up the sound a couple times. times on a couple of episodes, my first episodes uh, in this uh, uh, home office. And so I was prepared. I had everything perfectly ready. Um, Mike and I were, Michael Heiss, of course, and I were going to meet in our, you know, virtual recording studio a half hour before Dr. Paul was supposed to come on and uh, talk about things and kind of, we'd already kind of game planned it. But uh, so Mike comes in at uh, 1230 and my sound doesn't work. And uh, I'm like, oh, great. I finally, I made sure everything was working. My uh, my computer said my microphone was working, but Mike couldn't hear me. So we panicked and restarted computers and tried different browsers. And literally like 90 seconds before Dr. Paul sat down, uh, we got it fixed. So uh, I'm a little bit flustered at the very beginning, uh, but uh, it turned out great. Uh, Dr. Paul, of course, he didn't have a whole lot of time to give us, uh, but any time you get to spend with uh, a hero and an inspiration is a valuable time. And I think we got an episode that is a little bit different from most of the times you hear Dr. Paul on podcasts here in the last few years. We didn't do too much talking, which was the game plan. And we didn't ask him about current events like, hey, what do you think uh, about what the Fed has done this quarter? Uh, or what do you think about the latest COVID news? Uh, he still talks about those things. And uh, we just wanted to, to spend some time with him. We did. It was an honor. And we know you'll enjoy spending a little time with Dr. Paul, too. 
This is a, uh, a special episode of Decentralized Revolution today. We have a, a great guest. We also have uh, Michael Heiss. He uh, heard that this was going on and I couldn't keep him away from it. But our uh, honored guest is Dr. Ron Paul. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. It's nice to be with you. Thanks very much. Um, this is, you know, this is the Mises Caucus podcast. And so I thought the f- best first question would be, when did you first hear the name Ludwig von Mises and what happened after that? I don't know whether I can remember the precise first time because I knew of Mises for a good while. And it, for some reason, it, it could have been during like the Goldwater campaign or something because they would mention uh, Austrian economics, uh, you know, here and there. So I probably heard it, uh, which, which means uh, you know, it's, it's been a long time ago, uh, but I was just being introduced. Actually, I, I read Hayek before, you know, in the road to serfdom before I started reading anything from, uh, from Mises, but it, it was uh, pretty early on. So, so Dr. Paul, I've, I've read a pamphlet that you had wrote a while back called uh, uh, Austrian Economics or Mises and Austrian Economics, a personal view. And, and in that pamphlet, you had said that it was the, uh, the example of Mises' character, uh, as well as the, the confidence that you had gained from the, the Austrian school that, uh, that kept you sane in the daily circus of Washington. So obviously Mises was, was highly influential to you. So uh, what was like what was your what was the most influential work? Uh, on you by Mises and like what was your greatest takeaways from his work? Well, you know, I started by reading his shorter books, whether it was bureaucracy and various things, and he had a lot of short ones and they were easier. But I think the one that I spent the most time on because it took me a long time to read it and and I do a lot of underlining was that human action. And I think that's had a lot of of effect on me. And uh, it's uh, it's something that uh, it, it, it took a long time uh, for me to absorb all that, uh, but uh, it uh, it was it was something that uh, you know I enjoyed doing. But you know, from Mises, I did meet a lot of the other Austrian economists, and I did hear Mises you know uh, lecture one time, and uh, it uh, did have a in a lot of influence. That, that pamphlet that you were talking about, it's interesting. I took I uh, had an invitation before I got out of Congress to go to uh, a Czech, uh, a Czech Republic, because they were uh, publishing in Czech uh, Mises's Human Action, and asked if I would come over and help uh, celebrate the uh, publication of that. And my wife and I got invited, and we and we went over. But I took that pamphlet and uh, I passed that out. I have no other. I didn't have any real feedback on it. But the, really, the theme uh, of that little pamphlet was that uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Mises was more of a utilitarian, and uh, Murray was uh, more of a, a you, you know moralist. I mean, the principles of liberty, uh, and I agreed with uh, Murray on that. But uh, I always praised Mises, and I thought it blended quite well because I start with morality. You have a right to your life, and you can it's your life, and you can do what you want. That sort of thing, and that leads you to free market economics. And but Mises was more in a way of presenting his views objectively and saying, this is what I do, and this A, B, C, D, and he was analyzing things, and he came to the conclusion that uh, somebody like Murray and me, we we would start with 
you know, we have our freedoms and there it goes. And I've often said in my speeches that even if we got, even if we got poorer, I'd, I'd accept the conditions of more liberty, but we don't have to worry about that because, you know, the freer you are, the more wealth there, there will be. But I like Mises because he sort of, uh, you know, brought us together on this because he was, uh, he was the one that was analyzing it strictly from, you know, if you do these things, uh, uh, you know, what, what are the consequences of it? And uh, his, his uh, investigations and writings and theories said that, uh, you know, you're going to have more wealth uh, if, you, if, if you don't have wage and price controls, that things are better off. And uh, we might say uh, the other side would be we, we don't want wage and price controls because it's a moral issue. People shouldn't be telling us what to do. Uh, but I liked it because Mises brought it together. And I thought he sort of verified, even if you start off with a moral principle uh, that you come up with in the same way as somebody trying to analyze it. So I think this is what Mises did. He uh, confirmed that, uh, you know, the moral issue uh, was the right way to go, or he wasn't objecting to it, and the two can come together, and that's uh, that uh, makes one a firm believer in Austrian free market economics. Yeah, I would I would add to that that I think the the moral imperative that's that's in the message is is more intuitive, uh, whereas the the utilitarian argument is more uh, analytical. So I think it's it's more inspiring to kind of start from that that uh, moral position, and I think that's why your campaigns. Were, were so effective. Um, but you had, you had mentioned Rothbard, so that's that's who we wanted to get into next. Um, so, you know, obviously you knew Murray, and and I believe he was involved in your, your 88 campaign. And uh, a, lot of our, a lot of our audience is, you know, big fans of Mises, big fans of Rothbard, big fans okay. of the Mises Institute. So uh, do you have any, like, fun stories from your times with Murray Rothbard that the, the audience might enjoy? Well, there, there's a lot of stories, and just his character was something else. <laughs> you know, there there were some things that were really, really pretty silly uh, things that he liked that I sort of chuckled at because uh, he he liked to listen to soap operas, <laughs> and that just baffled me. Here's this Murray Rothbard, a giant in economics, and of course he uh, didn't go to bed uh, but he, until in the wee hours of the morning. He would stay up and talk with us as long as we wanted. And then he would sleep in, but when he got up, he watched the soap operas. And I, I just I considered that uh, rather funny that, it, that he would do that. But it must, be a, it must have been a form of relaxation uh, for him. And I, I don't know exactly uh, when, when he wrote. Uh, he, it must have been late at night. He, you know, when he wasn't at one of our meetings or conventions or something, he probably stayed, he probably stayed up late at, at, at night doing his work. Uh, but his schedule was a, a little bit weird. He was also, he also, uh, you know, you mentioned the 88 campaign. Yes, I blamed him for getting me involved. And I used to really go after him. Would you, you get me involved in this with? So it was, it was uh, Murray and Bert Blumert. I imagine you know Bert Blumert's name. And uh, they were very, very good friends. And, uh, and I got to know Murray a lot there. But, but the Gold Commission, where Murray came and did research in, in D.C., that would have been in 19... Uh, 80, 81, I would think that would be when the Gold Commission met, and that was a that came out as a, a consequence of a bill that uh, Jesse Helms and I passed, and that was to study gold as money in the international monetary system. And uh, and and Murray spent some time with us there, uh, 
but I knew, that, and, and of course, because he was uh, uh, with uh, Lou Rockwell, you know, a partner in in a uh, letter, RRR report it was, and then uh, of course in '88 it was. I always blame uh, Bert and, and Murray for getting me involved uh, in in that campaign, and it's with tongue and cheek. I mean. There was a lot of agony in doing that and uh, knowing exactly what it meant and the consequences of it. But uh, I had I had a goal, which was a consequence of uh, something that happened 50 years ago this year, and that was the uh, elimination of the Bretton Woods Agreement and the unleashing of the Federal Reserve System. And uh, so this was um, th this was something that was you know very very important. And, uh, and and he he was on the gold commission, and we uh, uh, you know did did a dissenting viewpoint, which got published as the case for gold. Uh, but I um, I didn't I, I the closest I came to meeting Mises was uh, hearing him in one of his last lectures given. He was on a tour shortly before he died, a year or so before he died in the early seventies, and he came to Houston, and I took the afternoon off from my medical practice. Uh, but uh, I thought, oh, nobody will be there because it, it, uh, because nobody heard of him. So I, I traveled. It was 50 miles up to Houston, went up there, and I thought, well, uh, they showed me the room where he was. It was a small room, but it was jam-packed, and they were overflowing, standing in the hallways. I had to stand at the door uh, to listen to him, and I thought, thinking back on it, I thought, that was probably pretty magnificent because nobody ever heard of him. Nobody thought it. You would say, you know, he's the most important teacher we ever had. He was denied even a job teaching in a real university. And uh, yet, uh, the truth about what he was writing about, even back then, was well known among many young people. So it was a lesson that I learned. And he lectured on uh, socialism at the time. Uh, uh, that he, you know, he had a little booklet called Socialism. So he, uh, but uh, I didn't, I can't say, you know, I met him. But I did meet him as a, as him being a lecturer. But uh, other than that, not. But I got to know Murray much better, uh, and of course he worked with Lou Rockwell and continued to do that. And it was such a shame because I always thought that uh, Austrian economists uh, would live to be uh, live to old age. You know Hayek and and uh, and, and Mises. Uh, they made late eighties and nineties, and Leonard Reed and all that. Murray, unfortunately, uh, died at a younger age. He loved politics, I'll tell you what. And sometimes he made me a little nervous about it because I thought, he, he, I, I thought he'd do anything to just get involved. And he would get involved in Republican politics. And, and if he wasn't trying to get me to do something in the Libertarian Party, he was really, you know, when Pat Buchanan was running, he says, oh, no, this is the strategy. We're gonna, uh, you, you should run against Pat Buchanan. And he almost talked me into that, and I thought, that's craziness. I'm not going to do that. I thought, uh, I thought Murray was weak on the issue. <laughs> why, give, why give the Republicans and, and, uh, and, 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 and give uh, Buchanan any benefits? So I, I didn't do that, <laughs> and I think I was smart. But the, the one thing about doing that in 1988 is that um, – it was hard. It was traveling. It wasn't like I got to travel in the 19 uh, or 2008 and 2012 election because all of a sudden there was somebody out there, uh, people out there that wanted me to do it, and they would send money and said, fly in an airplane, get around and do whatever you can. Uh, but back then, 
I would go to the colleges. Every college had at least three or four libertarians, you know, uh, around. And there'd be small groups, and I made the travels and, and did it. And uh, I thought, well, you know, theoretically, the theory was that I'm still reaching people. And that was my goal, is to reach people that are curious and they want to know about it. But it was, uh, it was something that uh, you just don't know how much good it does. Just like I'm amazed at how many people I come across now that heard me speak in the, in 08 or in 12 and they were teenagers and now they have their own organization. So you have no idea how, it, how the, the message of Liberty can, can spread. So I, uh, the, the, the final conclusion of this little point was there were so many people, although there were a few people, there were so many of them that showed up again. You know, in the libertarian, you know, in my uh, congressional races, the presidential races, and still staffers. I think there's somebody that works for the Mises Institute was a staffer. I ran a lot of lot of staffers that uh, you know had moved on and have become very important in the libertarian movement. And uh, we have no idea uh, what the benefits are. So uh, Leonard Reed uh, was a good friend, and I really admired him. He says, don't worry about the numbers. Worry about what you know and be informed. Somebody's going to make use of it, uh, use of you to promote uh, to promote the issues. And the whole thing is, is you have to have people in leadership that influence other people. And when the prevailing attitude is a certain thing, then the things will change. And a little bit of that's happening right now. I, I continue to try to change that. We have our Liberty Report and a lot of other people speaking out. And I think the attitudes, it's been rough at competing with the monopoly on the control of the lockdown. But now uh, people are catching on, people are sick of it. And we're just about to enjoy some lightening up of those regulations in Texas. I was telling Daniel today when we were on our program, I said, isn't it really sad that we have to be excited about the return of a smidgen of our liberty? I said, that was supposed to be natural, but I was sort of making a ton of that yeah we're glad about it but it is a, it is rather sad that we have to fight for a speck of liberty and try to convert people because the prevailing attitude uh has been on the other side but the prevailing attitude has changed on covid in the last six months or so and that's why there's been some places opening up and i'm delighted to see somebody like DeSantis getting attention because he did take a different position and that's why even though we might feel alone whether we're doing it as an individual in education or whether we're doing it in the libertarian party the republican party it's really the vehicle is irrelevant uh it's the message and leonard reed always emphasized that you have to have to understand what the message is and you have to work it trying to present this to people who don't know what it is about and that's what i think i enjoy the most is uh is, is talking to people uh, a decent uh reasonable liberal progressive that's willing to talk i think it's the most interesting things to do because they'll ask honest questions and you know in washington i operated that way tried to get along with all the democrats and progressives and it, guess what three or four of them actually did ask me some questions but where am i coming from because they didn't understand it and uh and 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 I, I that sounds like silly couple people here and there but I'll tell you what you get a couple young people excited and uh about what they're doing and uh 
this is the this is what we I always told people after they listened to one of my talks and I say okay Ron we agree with you and this tell us what we have to do and I was like do whatever you want to do you know you, you got to pass you got to move the message and I had my way of doing it and most of it was an accident you know where I got to but it was made a big difference the fact that you know uh, I had a seat in Congress people say should I run for Congress like you did I said absolutely not that, don't do that. Don't set your goal is to run in, in, for for Congress. And uh, that was never my goal. And uh, it turned out that I was there a long time. Uh, as far as seniority goes, I should have been the chairman. So in conventional wisdom, I was a total failure. You know, I, I had one bill passed to emphasize the fact that uh, we ought to study gold as real money. The Constitution says it sounds, sounds like a good idea. But no, it's... Uh, it, it's 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 something that uh, uh, it has to be done philosophically, and you have to have leadership there. And people will change their mind. And uh, I and I think that I actually come across as an optimist. I think what I'm seeing with young people and what I saw in the campaigns. And I thought uh, I was delighted at one campaign event at Berkeley, California. You know, everybody and they said, "Oh, yeah, you know, uh, the the Wall Street people uh, are there. They're going to cause trouble." Now we didn't have any trouble, and in those both those campaigns, might I might say that it could be harder these days. Uh, Rand's getting a bit of more heat of it, and uh, it is a mixed bag, and that's why. But be, being involved, like you you two are, you're involved. You're trying to work, and the issue is what is the message? Base it on. Uh, I like to base it on on a basic moral principle and learn how to convince people that it's the safest way to go because i explained you know how can we have this philosophy based on a moral issue of peace a moral issue of prosperity and uh and and not do better we don't do so well and but where we lose out is the aggressiveness of the bad people wanting to be in politics so the, the country's not like the people we hear about in Washington. They're the aggressors. And other, too many other people are too complacent. They don't care and they don't do much. But uh, I think it's, it's a job of uh, waking people up uh, and, and, and getting them excited about uh, Austrian economics and liberty and uh, the reasons for it and uh, the fun that you can have in associating with other people that are trying to do the same thing. Yeah, I am I am one of those young people you talked about. I don't know if you remember this, but the first time I ever met you uh, was at the very end of your uh, congressional career, and I, I had organized an End the Fed rally at every bank and sub-bank in the country simultaneously, and that wow. <laughs> that that, uh, that earned me a, uh, uh, a meeting with you, and that, that helped accelerate my... Uh, philosophical evolution and now here we are and what we focus on uh, as the Mises caucus within the libertarian party is decentralization you know we really focus realistically that was another piece of advice you gave me at uh, the Mises 35th anniversary is to be realistic and uh, how we maintain being realistic is focusing at the local level focusing on nullification and decentralization and uh, to jump back one more time, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm pretty sure there is audio of that speech in Dallas that Mises gave that you attended on the Mises Institute's website. So we'll have to. Uh, oh, well, well, I, I, I was in Houston. You mean or, I'm sorry, I Houston. Yeah, Houston. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but uh, let, me, let me let me say something about the decentralization because I think that is Absolutely. good. 
But if you continue with that thought, the next thought is the real decentralization is, uh, you know, individual liberty, you know, and everybody's responsible for their life. But decentralization in a political sense is a very good point to make. Absolutely. And and like you said, like you turn on the news and, and they'll have you think that there's all this hate and there's all this fighting and all this stuff. But then you just go to your local park, go to a basketball game, go to your kid's school, you know, and generally speaking, people cooperate. And, and that's that's what this is all about. And I think at that local level, we can infiltrate the culture um, and, and engage the culture and, and put that message of individual liberty out while also achieving political decentralization from the, uh, the Leviathan state. Um, so I know we've only got about 10 more minutes with you. So uh, obviously we're the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. Um, the, the Libertarian Party, frankly, in, in my and, and most of the people in the caucus's opinion, has not given you the respect that you deserve. And it's had a lot of ups and downs. Um, and it's, it's, you can make the argument that it's had some more downs than ups in recent history. Um, so what I, what I was wondering, like, in your mind, if the Libertarian Party was living up to its potential and fulfilling the role that it ought to be filling, what would that look like? You know, what, what is that role? Well, I see it in light of how I saw my own campaign. Mine was always designed for education, you know, and influence. Uh, I often told people that I have no desire for power. I don't want any control over other people, but I don't mind having uh, been said that I had a little bit of an influence, you know, on, on the views. And then when I look at, uh, you know, the drug war, I, I uh, you know, I was the only one there, maybe another person uh, that argued against the drug war early on. When I ran in 88 as a libertarian, that was a, you know, a big issue because I felt so strongly about it. And I never used the drugs or anything else. But uh, I, I think the, 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 the uh, a drug war and what's going on now uh, is a result of a libertarian thought that goes there. And, but, but I also am critical of the details of it because a lot of people, if I'm at a group, which that's one of their big issues, I say, yes, Ron Paul's for the legalization of marijuana. And I say, no, wait a minute. I said, I, that's not, that's not my position. I'm for the legalization uh, for the legalization of freedom, of freedom of choice. And uh, marijuana is just a side effect, making the point that you get to make your decisions on anything you want. Uh, you know, whether it's what you put in your body or how you waste your time or spend your money, but you have to be responsible for all your actions. And uh, that, that's a, quite a bit different. But I, I think, uh, and I think the Federal Reserve is, uh, it's a, a, a big deal now. Everybody, much more so than they did uh, back in the 70s. Nobody had, well, the people would come up and say, why do you keep talking about this Federal Reserve back in 76? Of course, the main reason I got decided to speak out was the 1971 breakdown uh, of the Bretton Woods. So uh, I think that uh, these issues are very, very important and they have to be changed. I think they are. I think the libertarian message has been there. So I do get frustrated when somebody calls themselves a libertarian group and, uh, and, and we're miles apart on maybe foreign policy. You have to apply to foreign policy. You have to apply it to economic policy. You have to apply it to personal liberty. And, uh, and the non-aggression non principles should answer that question. And I think uh, I use so often the Bastiat example 
uh, that you know people to understand that the young people when i go to the college they, they understand this thing about uh you know uh, you shouldn't hurt people and you shouldn't take their their things you can't steal from them and uh and they sort of say yeah that's true i said yeah but if you decide that you need something is that a right can you send your congressman and do exactly what you wouldn't do on a level this whole idea that people understand moral principles much better uh, you know, at that level, individuals shouldn't steal, but they don't think for a minute about uh, the stealing that government does, and and taxes and inflation is always always stealing, uh, stealing it uh, to do things. So, so they uh, and, and what, what the gun issue is another one. I I I tell them I'm really uh, I, I you know opposed to guns. I would make sure that all the guns were taken away from the bureaucrats of government. And there's a couple hundred thousand of them that, that have it there. So we want more gun control there, but we want the guns uh, to uh, to go to the people for defending themselves against, uh, you know, invasion and against, the, and against the government if it gets off base. You know, you, you've touched on the uh, the breakdown of Bretton Woods, and that was both the catalyst for your original run, and it was also the catalyst for the founding of the Libertarian Party. And uh, the role that you cast for for the, uh, the Libertarian Party is actually the same or very similar to the role that was cast by the founders of the Libertarian Party and, and David Nolan. So uh, fully in agreement there, and we are doing our best to try to help the uh, the party recapture that spirit, um, and we're doing quite well. Um, we, are, we are now... Um, we are now well, well instituted in more than half of the state parties, and we were more than 40 percent of the last national convention, and uh, it's just going to grow. So right. um, final, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we could. I would love to tell you more about that. So my final question for you is you have had a, a long and an, an incredible journey in, in this uh, this quest for freedom. Um, at what moments did you did it feel the most meaningful to you? When, when, what, what was going on and what were you doing that when it felt the most meaningful and like you were achieving the most good? Well, that's a hard question. There's been a lot of episodes where emotionally you might feel good about how things are going. We had a few of those, those moments. And, and I have to admit, I really enjoyed going to the campuses, uh, a lot of young people, and they were very supportive. And uh, that, that to me was always a satisfaction that the message can be delivered and it will be accepted, and uh, that that to me was sort of the the message that I that I liked. And uh, but there's there's been a whole lot. Uh, I tell people all the time that uh, it can be very tiring and dangerous. Uh, just look at the trouble ran, the things they do to him. It's dangerous and and all these things that that uh, go go on, but. When you get together, when you get a group together, which you do, I'm sure, all the time, they, you ought to have some fun doing it because, uh, you know, tomorrow and the next day, we're not so sure what's going to happen. So in the meantime, if it's a bore, you know, one thing that I've been watching now, and this is a lesson of the opposite thing that you were asking me, is when I look at the opposition, how miserable they are. And if you look at CNN is one of them, but MSNBC is another one, but CNN, they have a panel and they're all part of CNN. They look like the saddest people in the world. You know, they were just look so miserable. And I, I think there should, uh, there should be more enjoyment uh, 
you know, in doing it. And there's reason because if you, uh, if, if people move in our direction, they're all going to be better off. Uh, but uh, it's back to the education. I think it's so important. And that's, of course, why I became, uh, you know, uh, I was very helpful. I know, well, I shouldn't make a judgment call. I tried to be very helpful with Lou in getting the Mises Institute started. And uh, I think that's very, very important, you know, uh, that, that there's a moral element to it. Uh, there's an intellectual element to it. There's a fun element to it. And, uh, and, and then a positive attitude that, that happens. So, you know, you were mentioning a little bit about not uh, most of the people you meet are pretty decent people. And I've said that on many teams, you know, times. I said, you know, if I think about, I've probably lived in six or seven different places, you know, being in medicine and the college and military and all these things. I said, the neighborhoods were always very nice. We always, you know, got along together. And we had, we went to churches. We always met people that were friendly. And, uh, and I really didn't see many mean and nasty people. That doesn't mean that I think people are all poor, perfect, and I haven't met some. But basically, the overwhelming number of people that I've dealt with over the years have been uh, pretty nice people. But I think when you look at what's going on, on especially, uh, there's a couple people uh, in both parties, but more so in the Democrat Party. I don't know whether I'd like to have them as my neighbor. <laughs> you know, they, they don't seem to be very friendly at all, uh, but, but they look very, very sad. Look at them, next time you look at them, when they're at least they're uh, in, involved in a panel discussion, they, they have something with that I think Ben Franklin said, we, we cannot, if we present the Constitution, we cannot have long faces. I'll tell you what, you look at this, those programs, uh, th those uh, interviews and television, you see a lot of long faces. They're very unhappy people because our message should be enlightening, just like if you're satisfied and happy with your spiritual beliefs, it should uh, not make you sad and miserable. And I think that's the way it should be politically. And, uh, and I think coming together with like-minded people, you say, well, they're all believers. What good is it to me to talk to people who already believe? Well, just, uh, just for a little bit of support and maybe get another idea because you never have perfect knowledge. And, uh, and, and this is why I like to go to conferences. I, I went to a uh, uh, conference this past weekend. I talked to a lot of young people, but I'm interested in talking to them and finding out what their views are. And a lot of them will have, you know, good perceptions, and uh, they will be 80% there, and then there'll be some disagreement and uh, on another issue. And right now, the biggest challenge I have uh, with just about all age groups is this thing about uh, foreign policy how uh, it's 110% uh, China's fault for why we're going to have a World War III real soon. And they don't look at it objectively. And there's a different opinion and a different scenario uh, if you look at what's really going on. Well, I know that's, uh, that's about the end of your time. So I will just say that... Um you know, another quote of yours is that any good revolution needs young people in music. And, and it was that spirit that made the revolution that sprung up around you so fun and so endearing. And I'm so happy to say that what you're describing is what is flooding into the Mises Caucus. We are, we are having so many young entrepreneurs, young professionals, musicians, comedians. There's a real culture forming up and, and our events are growing. Like there's now 
like our last event had nearly 400 people at it and there's comedy and people having a good time and, and all of that. So, um, you know, thank you for that. Yeah, and, uh, let, let me, excuse me, let me add one thing. Music can be used as a sneak attack. You know, if you, if you work your way into conventional music, but you have that message, yeah, they'll be absorbing like like the far left. They're always saturating ourselves with uh, the bad information. But uh, no, I, I like the idea. There were quite a few songs uh, sung and written uh, for our campaign, and I enjoyed that. Dr. Paul, it's uh, we could sit and talk to you all day, but you have uh, a job as the you're the most productive, busy, retired person I know. You're you're working with the uh, uh, your Institute for Peace and Prosperity, so we know you've got some work to do today, and we're we're just very grateful that you were able to carve out some time for us. We uh, Mike does want to ask you a question off the record here in a second, but uh, again, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Nice being with you. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Dr. Ron Paul for sharing his time and so much of his wisdom and for, of course, his unparalleled work, Advancing Liberty, for inspiring the Mises Caucus. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to put into words what he means to uh, all of us. Thanks also to Chris Rossini, Dan McAdams, everyone affiliated with Dr. Paul and his Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Thanks to Michael Heiss for coming on too, as if I could have kept him away. But uh, but really, I, in, in all truth, I, I just really enjoyed watching Mike interact with Dr. Paul, knowing how much he means uh, to Mike and the whole idea behind the Mises Caucus. I'll have links to some cool stuff on the show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 55, including audio of the speech by Mises at the University of Houston in 1972 that Dr. Paul talks about. Thanks to Dave vs. Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The episode will be up fairly quickly with uh, Sheldon Richmond talking about Israel-Palestine. We'll see you.